0: Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. It is 9.02 on uh, Monday the 4th. I am still COVID-free. I have one of my probably longest friends in the history of Aaron Kind on the horn, a guy who I spent 10 great months with in the shittiest part of Korea that I know of. I guess you would be, and I, when I knew you, Sergeant Tetrault, but what... <laughs> you're Steve now. What's up, man?
1: Yeah, what's up, man? Yeah, those were some... Uh... <laughs> crazy times at camp house camp house is the only place in america in the world where we own a base that it's uphill both ways.
0: <laughs> yeah no no kidding so uh, a little backstory um i was in um f- well originally f- 10th mountain division fort drum light, light infantry as a as a combat engineer and uh i was in panama for a while or whatever in drum you travel everywhere anyway i ended up going to korea after that and i was there a couple months and uh, after i was there a couple months you were a staff sergeant and you came from bragg and you were a light fighter and uh kind of all the light fighters stuck together for the most part when we were there which is how i got to know you and then Fast forward a shitload of years, I saw you at the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show because you were stationed in Lewis. Is that the gist of it?
1: Yeah, that's the gist of it, man. I mean, uh, I was probably you know back in 1998, I was a uh, I was a staff sergeant in the 82nd Airborne Division. You know, jumping out of airplanes for a living, living the hooah life. And then uh, one day I walked into work and they gave me a set of orders, said you're going to Korea, and I was like, oh shit, I don't want to go to Korea, <laughs> you know. The old adjective, they used to say that in order to get one one soldier to go to Korea, you had to put 25 of them on orders because everybody found a way to get out of going. And, well, I couldn't get out of it, and I ended up at Camp House Korea. And when I walked through the door, you know, one of the first people I met was you and old Daniel Barnes, yeah. the armor. Remember <laughs> <Yeah>. that kid?
0: <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah.
1: Which is, uh, which is another fantastic story. You know, Daniel Daniel lives here in Waynesville, Missouri with me. He Well, not with me, but he lives in town here. And, you know, that, that guy lost both his legs uh, during the um, the Iraq campaign, you know, got hit by an R- RPG right through the side door of his Humvee and lost both of his legs. And uh, he is one, one hell of a trooper man. Remember, we used to play softball all the time. Remember that?
0: I do. What I could remember, because we drink too much. But, yeah. Yeah. Um... I do. play yeah, played we, softball we played once.
1: Softball, yeah. yeah, we played softball, and him and Buddy Webster and the guys were on the team with us, and, you know, but Daniel's a great story, you know, he's one of those great stories about all Americans, you know, that do great things, you know, lost both his legs, works at Lowe's now, super guy, every time I walk in there, I see him, you know, and he's just helping people, you know, just, you know, we talk about a guy who had a really bad experience, but all of a sudden, you know, took it, made the best out of it and everything, but yeah, we were in Korea together, you know, and you talked about the light fighter, so we, do you remember we had the um, the L six group going?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think didn't you get in trouble for that?
1: Yeah, we did. Remember, we had uh, you know the whole story is you know back when you're when you're jumping on airplanes, they used to always say that uh, when you when you drop three thousand paratroopers on a drop zone in the middle of the night, that you're not never going to link up with all your buddies. You're going to end up stuck with somebody else, and you just grab a bunch of people and form these little groups of pissed off paratroopers. And that's essentially what we were in Korea. We were, we were this group of pissed off paratroopers because we were in Legland, And, you know, we were sitting there and we, we managed to roll up a couple of you leg guys. I call you a leg guy now, but, you know, your, your <laughs> reputation, you know, so anytime, uh, anytime a guy who's a non-paratrooper can get into that group and get folded into that that group is it's a huge thing it says a lot about your character and your moxie and the type of person you are so we i just remember we folded you in and then we went around and that was one of the joys about korea we could get those stupid hats made down in itaewon for about (laughs) two dollars a piece we all made these elgop hats we're running around posts with them all the time and people started asking questions what what an elgop was and of course you know they were a bunch of legs they didn't know what was going on and um I remember Paul Dominguez made up a story. We got called to the battalion commander's office, which is never a good thing. You know, you get called to his office. you've usually done something pretty bad, and they want to chop you off at the kneecaps. But he, he called us in there, and he said, you know, what's up with this, these LGOP hats you guys are all running around with? You know, you got some type of gang going or whatever? And I remember Paul being as smart as he was and, you know, very nimble on his feet, said, no, sir. You know, I, I came from JRTC, which is the big uh, readiness training center down at Fort Polk. He was an OC down there. He said, then, I bought a bunch of stock in the Louisiana gas, oil, and petroleum products, and then I sold, I told my buddies about it, and they bought it, and these are just the hats for the company or whatever, <laughs> and we tried to play it out. So, little did they know, we were an actual, like, a cult going on and stuff like that. So, it, yeah, very I, interesting. Sure.
0: I remember when you told me that, did you end up becoming a sergeant major or command sergeant major or brigade commander? What What was it you ended up when you got out?
1: Yeah, so... Yeah, so when I finally retired I retired from the Army in July of twenty eighteen after thirty one years and I was a my final job was I was the uh, brigade sergeant major of the fifty fifth fifty fifth uh, triple nickel basically the five 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 engineer brigade at Fort Lewis, Washington, now known as Joint Base Lewis McCord. Um and, you know under that under my you know, my roles there I had I had three battalions underneath and you know, I had a um you know, a battalion is probably about you know eight hundred people or so, and, and a battalion made up of probably anywhere from five to six companies. But I had, I had three of them. I had a uh, engineer battalion, the eight sixty fourth engineer battalion, and then I had uh, uh, a chemical battalion and an EOD battalion. So, you want to talk about a range of a bunch of people that don't like each other? You know, no, no combat engineer. Engineer likes an MP. No, they we don't like MPs. They're number one at the top of the list, and then right below them is the capital and the EOD guys. Because the EOD guys think you know they're the greatest guys in the world. In fact, I can remember when I got to I got to Lewis in in October of fifteen. I had to go around to all the different units, and they briefed me of what they did and everything. Introduced me to all the the leadership and stuff, and. I walked in the door to the EOD battalion, and I sat down in the conference room at a table. And they were like, "All right, sir, Major, we're going to go ahead and give you this briefing about what we do and our capabilities and everything." And I was like, "Hey, dude, we can save ourselves some time, man. I watched uh, the Hurt Locker. I know everything that you guys do." <laughs> oh my god! They, they, they were literally ready to string me out from the nearest pole right then and there because they, you know, they tried to convince me, you know, no, the Hurt Locker is just a, you know, a Hollywood fantasy. That's not really what you know, we, EOD does or whatever, I'm like, are you sure? Because that's what kind of what I thought, you know, and it was really funny because I had had some, um, I had some dealings with EOD, you know, being deployed into both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan with, uh, you know, my guys were always route clearance, so, you know, we would go out in the mine protected vehicles and clear the routes, look for IEDs and stuff like that. And for the longest time, you know, the, the country rules were you couldn't blow anything up unless an EOD guy was there with you. Mm-hmm. So we'd find, say we were traveling down a road, we'd find an EOD, I mean an ID, and um, we'd call the EOD guys and say, hey, can you come blow this up for us? And they're like, well, oh, yeah, we'll be there in an hour. You know, like two days later, we're still sitting in the same spot waiting for these EOD guys to show up. And they kind of, they, they fastly replaced the MPs at the top of my hate list because they were us. <laughs> so madonna. But, you know, they, they, do a, they do a very hard job. Um, it's just, they, they were spread too thin, you know, and stuff like that. So it really got to be crazy. So, yeah. So I ended up as a brigade sergeant major, you know, I ended up having to go out to, um, the sergeant major's academy out in, uh, uh Fort Bliss, Texas, spend a year out there going to school, which is, which is a lot of fun. You know, Texas, El Paso, Texas is a great town. Lots of good weather. Um, not much hunting or fishing to do, which was really bad for me. My wife told me once, she said, I'd love to stay there, but there's no hunting, fishing. And I knew you'd go crazy. I said, yes, absolutely, I would go crazy there. But I spent a year out there uh, going to school. You know, it's kind of a professional development type thing where they teach you. I, I like to say they, they're supposed to teach you how to be a SAR major, but they really, it didn't really teach me how to be a SAR major. I kind of learned that, the leadership stuff throughout my career. And then uh, I graduated from that and shipped off the back, right back to Fort Bragg where I spent probably about 17 years of my 30 years. And uh, the battalion sergeant major there, I uh, got done with my time there, came back here to Fort Leonard Wood and did a quick stint working at the, the engineering school as a, a proponent sergeant major, which was the guy, you know, and I'm sure you remember this back in your Army times, you know how we had a company that had, you know, 110 people in it and had, you know, seven drivers, some people were ace drivers, some people were track drivers and stuff like that. Well, that's what the... That's what the proponent office did. It it developed all the data and stuff to say each company should have this amount of equipment, this amount of people, and things like that. And I did that for about a year. Um, Well, it was about 14 months. And then I got uh, selected by the Army to go out to Triple Nickel to be the Brigade Sergeant Major out there. And I went out there and spent from October of 15 to July of 18 as the Brigade Sergeant Major. Then I retired and moved back here to Waynesville, Missouri to... Work as a JROTC instructor, Junior Reserve Officer Training uh, Course instructor at the Waynesville High School. So now I I went from uh, dealing with you know 18 to 30 year old kids to dealing now with 14 to 17 year old kids, which there is really isn't a big difference. Let me tell you.
0: <laughs> the one thing I don't think people realize on my end how old I am because I'll get messages and I'm like, dude, I was in the army in the 90s, early 2000s the 240 Bravo was just getting introduced. Like we had M60s, like we, you know, it was, I say where you covered three decades, like you, you cover, (laughs) you're like, no, I don't want out 30 years in the army. is hard to, you know, to, to believe because you, you covered, I mean, from low tech, the Clinton administration, all the way through the Obama administration and two Bush administrations, you covered a lot
1: yeah I, I mean I, I think about my times when uh, when I first joined the Army and I got shipped off to Germany so I went to Germany with my first duty station so I arrived to uh, a place called Wild Flick in Germany in um, February of 1989 which was you know crazy I'm riding on a bus I keep keep dropping people off you know they put you you fly into Germany into this main main reception battalion. They do some paperwork, and they stick you on a bus to take you to your duty station. And I, every place I kept going, it was all these nice barracks buildings, you know, McDonald's, all kinds of these high-speed restaurants and stuff like that. And I kept going, and before you know it, I was the only dude left on the bus. And I'm like, "Oh man, this can't be good." Well, they dropped me off at camp at Wildflick in there, and uh, it was crazy because I was telling my wife the other day, the Army's changed so much. You know, I drive out here on Fort Leonard Wood now, and the kids that are you know, young privates to specialists, they have three-person houses, so they literally have a house that they live in. I showed up to my first duty station, I lived in a room with eight other dudes. Yep. You know, each of us had, double, you know, in four corners of the room, there was bunk beds, and uh, we had wall lockers separating off your little personal space, and we were driving around in 113s, and we were wearing uh, BDUs, you know, <laughs> the old camouflage BDUs, and then... Which, you know, later on in life, we switched to a new uniform. We got the ACU uniform, which was the, you know, the Army combat uniform, which is that, I don't know, well, whoever thought that was a good idea, was that gray digital one. And then we switched back to the OCP. So I think I've been through, well, we actually had, when I first got to Germany, they, they issued us um, the OD green uniforms to go to the field in. So technically, I had I had four uniforms during my time in the Army, four different camouflage uniforms, two different dress uniforms, uh, I went from having an M16 that fired on full automatic that you know looked like it was <laughs> straight out of Vietnam. Now that by the time I ended, you know, I had a I had an M4 with an ACOG sight on it, you know, a la <laughs> uh, sight, you know. Yeah, so I've seen some, I saw some pretty uh, pretty good stuff through the army, you know, technology change and stuff like that. So, but it was cool to see all that stuff, you know, coming and going. But I realized after a while there, as I got older, that those those new things coming out were twice as hard to figure out how to use. You know, in the old days, you could just take a, a Prick 77 radio, turn a knob, put the radio frequency on it, and talk to somebody. Now you got a, you know, you got a cryptic thing going on in it. You're talking on embitter radios or Harris radios that you got to have, you know, like a nuclear degree just to figure out how to program it. Do I need a beer can antenna? Do I need a, you know, it just, it was crazy, all the stuff that we've seen for sure.
0: Dude, I, I, uh, we had some, we get some pretty high speed guys that come through here and I was talking to them about, um, you know, when I was in Panama, I'd, I think I was there for six months and you, you know, you initially, when you are in Panama, we, <laughs> you go through, it's all, uh, ODA guys that probably just need a break. So they make them instructors, right. Or whatever. Anyway, uh, the jungle antenna, right. Like I was talking to these guys, I'm like, uh, about when we first built a jungle antenna compared to. The Wolfhound, for example, or whatever the hell they call that fucking thing that triangulates yeah. off office. And I was like, because we built the pack for the Wolfhound, the frame for a while. And I was like, Jesus Christ, times have changed. I remember hoisting up a bamboo triangle in hopes to get out of the triple canopy. And now you can pack a pack where we can drop a fucking JDAM on a guy with a cell phone off of what you're carrying in your backpack. It, it's pretty amazing technology as far as a war fighter goes, um, you know. And, and again, I obviously now I deal with it on a on a different side of things where I have guys like yourself and and others that come through that need high speed shit, and I just look at it and I'm like, wow, times have changed. We'll get into the AT4 story later because a lot of people don't believe that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when we were there, um, that was when anthrax. Were you there when we got shot with anthrax, Dominguez and I? Yes. Do you remember when he had me fall on the floor and start twitching?
1: <laughs> yeah, that didn't go over very well.
0: <laughs> yeah. we So, like, at that time, we were the f- first, I think, or one of the first to get shot with anthrax because we were in Southeast Asia. And I think the concept behind that is a normal human can handle three spores of anthrax, and we got injected with it for, what, three injections for over a year or something. I can't remember. And um, it was supposed to help our immunity to anthrax. Uh, you know, and I was uh, honestly, I'm like, man, my asshole's going to r- turn around, and start talking, fuck it back to me. I don't know what they're injecting, but you get injected with all kinds of shit, but that was in 97 or 98. Yeah.
1: 98.
0: Nine, not yeah, 90, 98. And I don't know what came of that, if it actually helped anyone or, or what, but that, I mean, that's how long ago we're, we're talking when you and I knew each other.
1: Yeah. Well, I got, you know, after my. After my shot at Korea of anthrax, I got them for another, I think, another six years after that. I kept getting the booster shot every year, and that was that and the gamma globin shot. Remember the gamma globin oh, shot? Oh, fuck they that get, thing, yeah. Oh, my God. That thing would leave, like, a, a, a softball-sized knot in the back of your butt upper butt cheek, and, dude, it would hurt for years, man. And I, I don't know. I probably had... I've had so much stuff injected into my body. In fact, I seen a thing on Instagram the other day. Someone said, "If you've ever, if you've ever been inoculated by the United States Army, you'll you're, you're never get COVID 19 So I don't yeah. know if that's true or not. <laughs> Probably not. just not. Yeah. It's like a, a little meme that said something about you know, it gets in your body and starts going around and finds all the stuff that Army's injected you with, and said, "Oh, we can't live here," and kind of runs away. But yeah, we got plenty of shots, man. You know, between the malaria shot, malaria pills, the anthrax shots, gamma globin shots, this shot, that shot. You know, I think we were all, you know, hey, you got to do this, so we did that, and we took them, and that was just the way it is. I just, I remember looking at my shot record one day, and you know, a normal shot record is probably about two pages long. I think I had like eighteen pages of shot records. Like, I, I don't know how I ever track of what I actually got to tell you the truth.
0: Yeah, no, no shit. But, uh, but before we move on to uh, funnier, funner stuff like hunting. So, I I haven't told this story too many times because it's fucking crazy and nobody believed me anyway. So, and uh, and T wasn't there. You were there in Korea, but you were, I think we were having a field. There's a field problem, and you were with.
1: Yeah, so I was out with my A and O platoon, which was the assault and obstacle platoon. That uh, we had all the big heavy vehicles that we couldn't drive to where you guys were at, based on the terrain. So we were in a different part of the KTC, which is the Korean. Training complex where you go to do all your all your fun shooting and things like that. So I mean I was there, but I wasn't in the in the tent when it happened.
0: What what had happened? And and I didn't like this guy. And qu- quite honestly, I don't know how many people did like this dude. But he he uh he had a live AT four that he thought was inert, and and no shit. So those things have a thirty meter killer radius behind it, and he fired that fucker off a live AT four, and I was right behind it. When it went off and two dudes, Meyer and uh, who I still talk to him and some other kid, and I can't remember, were in front of it. Uh, but it blew me back. I don't remember everything because it fucked me up a little bit. But yeah, what did you guys hear on the other end of the radio when that thing I mean, what was going on? Because I'm sure it was a bit chaotic as far as what actually happened, because it fired that he fired it right into the fucking wood line in front of a deuce and a half. I mean, he fired off a live AT-4 in front of a group of people.
1: So uh, I think, you know, the people who are going to listen to this podcast will know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, in the Army, you have some great leaders who are very confident, know everything that they're doing, you know, never make mistakes because they take their job really seriously. And then you have some that are probably 50-50, you know, 50% of them are confident and the other 50% are incompetent depending on what time of the day it is. And and that guy happened to be one of those 50/50 guys. You know, for the most part, he was pretty good. But you know, I think he got caught up in his I'm better than everybody else, and I'm going to show a bunch of my soldiers how cool I am. And you know, he rolled out onto the onto the truck and picked up a live AC4, like you said, and brings it into a, you know brings it in there and says, Hey, check this out. We're going to do some training, you know. And it fires this live thing up. The one thing I remember most about it is is a couple weeks later after you got back from the hospital and everything, I remember you telling me, hey, the only thing I remember was I, I, uh, something happened and then I woke up on a black hawk, buck naked, and it was cold. And <laughs> they were flying back to the <laughs> cold. Uh, yeah, that would be one hell of a way to wake up, you know, buck naked in a black horse, you know, not knowing what happened. But, you know, the gist of it is he fired this live AT-4 inside, you know, a confined area with a bunch of soldiers around that, He's lucky, you know, we didn't kill anybody.
0: Oh, you know? yeah. It's
1: just, I, I don't know. You know, I I think, you know, you could take your average, you know, and show them a NERD AC4 and a live one and say, tell me which one is real which not. I mean, a NERD one's got holes drilled in it. says so a NERD on it.
0: It's got a blue you know, band around the motherfucker, too, because yeah, I remember.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember looking at it saying, huh, that didn't have a blue band around it. And fucking boom. But, I mean, it fucked me up. I mean, and I didn't get. I didn't know the long term repercussions of what, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not blaming the army for all my woes and and ways and wonders, but I I fucking get migraines to this day at an epic level. I got to take medication for it, and I didn't get them before I got hit with that fucking rocket, but I certainly got them after.
1: You know, back in those days, we didn't even know what, what a traumatic brain injury was. You know, it wasn't one of those terms. You know, that term didn't really come into effect until the the, until the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. But I have no doubt that you had some type of TBI injury from it. You know, I mean, your brain probably got scrambled. You can't stand that close to one of those things going off. And, you know, especially in a confined area, and it goes off without having some type of residual effect from it.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean... It blew me back and I landed on my, my, uh, my K pot and it, it, um, you know, my head, I still got a nod on my head from where I had landed, but I mean, knock on wood, other than my equilibrium being fucked up and, and, uh, I was bleeding out my ears and my, my eyes a little bit, which sounds way worse than it was. Fuck man. I was lucky. Super lucky. And you know what was really lucky is that bitch piled into a fucking poplar tree before it activated. That's what was really lucky. Yeah. Um, cause they had to yeah, send EOD out back. to pull it out of the fucking tree.
1: <laughs> yeah. You guys got lucky, but you know, I can tell you those. that is, that is one of those incidents that, you know, it happens in training and you kind of look at it, but I just remember how the chain of command and how they handled it and everything. But I can, I can give you a, a, a kind of a, the same story, but in a different context. So, Years later, I'm a I'm a platoon sergeant in the 82nd Airborne Division, and we had just came back from a uh, a nine-month deployment to Kosovo. We got shipped off, you know, over there, no notice, shipped us over there. And we did, you know, a lot of peacekeeping stuff. When we come back, we had to refit and get ready for training. So one of the things we were doing, we were out at Camp McCall, which is, is where the SF guys train. That's where all the SF guys, when you go and do your stuff, you go to Camp McCall. And they had a really great mount site out there, so we were using their mount site, you know, to, to practice urban training is basically what it is. And I had a bunch of, I had my platoon and we were going through two different scenarios. So the scenario was, you know, the, a bunch of terrorists were in a building and we had to breach into the building and go secure secure a hostage or something. You know, would I ever do that in actual normal life? No, but it was just a training type thing. So we, we get out there and the day before we're practicing doing what we call rubber strip charges. You know, you take this rubber, it's basically a rubber tire, and you make a explosive charge on it, put some uh, C4 on the back of it, and when it blows up, it watches you know, through the door jam and blows the door off the hinges. So I go, and I got a bunch of my guys, and I'm practicing with these things, and we're trying to figure out how many you know, strips of deck cord we need to put on this thing. Well, we put like three strips on it, and we go to blow it up, and it's blowing the door straight off the hinges through the room, and we're like, oh, that might be too much. So I tell all my guys, hey, only put one strip of duct cord on there. They're like, okay. So later that night, we're getting ready. The next morning is the big time we're going to go in and actually run this mission and everything. So my guys are prepping to do their stuff. So as a platoon sergeant, I'm with one squad, and my platoon leader's with another squad. So they're making these charges, and the squad leader says, hey, I want four strips of duct cord on there. Well, one of the kids looks at him and says, hey, you know, sergeant T said only put one. He goes, ah, man, we need, we need four. And my platoon leader at the time, you know, He's an officer fresh out of, you know, West Point, you know, doesn't really know a whole lot. So he just kind of lets them go and do their thing. So they build these these charges with four strips of deck cord. So the next morning, we breach into this building. You know, I'm on the lower floors, they're on the upper floors. And we had kind of figured out that if you put the strip charge on the door, that you had to come outside of the room and into the adjacent hallway to stay away from the blast area, you know, just for a safety precaution. So they roll up to this door. They put the strip charge on, they roll around the other side, and they pull the time cord to get it to go off. And we had some pretty, I think we had probably, you know, 20 seconds of time fuse on this thing, you know, 20 seconds from the time you pull the fuse igniter until the time it blows up. Well, what unbeknownst to me is there, there's OP4 outside of the door, and they're throwing these arty simulators at these kids, and they're blowing up. Well, the squad leader mistakes one of the arty simulators as the charge going off, so he tells the guys they're stacked in the hallway, like, go. The first kid, you know, the lead, the point man, he's like, uh, I don't know if I should go because that didn't sound like the charge went off. And the squad leader's yelling at him, go, 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 go. You know, in the 82nd, if someone tells you to do something, you just do it. You don't even, you know, you don't think twice about it because your competent leaders know what they're doing. So this kid rolls around the corner, and when he rolls around the corner, he gets to the door, and the door is still standing there. He's like, oh, we got a problem. So the squadron is saying, go, go, go. So he just kicks the door open. He goes into the room, and it's a short room, so he yells, short room, so we can only stack two people in there. So you got got one kid in one corner, one kid in another corner, and the third guy in the stack standing right in the doorway. Well, what do you think happened next?
0: Oh, yeah, Yeah, that could not be good, yeah.
1: (laughs) Could not be good. And so it literally, when it blows up, shoots the one kid through the cockpit, through the plywood wall into another room. Another kid hits the outside wall, damn near flies out of the building. The kid standing inside the door gets just straight peppered with all this shrapnel and everything. You know, from the thing, you know, just a bunch of superficial wounds, but he's bleeding out of his ear. We finally get everybody out. We're outside and the medics are checking him out. And I just remember at the time, my battalion XO shows up and he's like, hey, Sergeant T, what's going on? Ah, sir, we had a little training accident. He goes, Everybody good? Everybody got all their fingers and digits? He's like, yep. All right, get back to training. <laughs> you know, and it was like nothing happen. It's the differences of the chain of command between Korea when it happens, where a bunch of legs they freak out about things and go crazy. You know, and the whole world's coming to an end. To you know, a couple of years later, I'm in the 82nd Airborne Division. They're like, ah, ah, that happens. You know, because you know, in the 82nd Airborne Division, you know, if you drop four thousand paratroopers in the middle of the night on a drop zone and you hurt four hundred of them, hell, that's a good day. You know, no, no big deal. Drive on, right?
0: I I brought this up. Right before, and I think I told you this story, I don't even remember, but, um, you, you know, when, you, when you're when you in a, a unit long enough, um, there's going to be guys like you that the upper higher-ups will trust and ask your advice. And there's going to be guys like uh, you that will trust maybe guys like me to say, hey, you know, keep an eye on this next field problem on this guy. Probably not the most ethical thing in the world to do, to have a PFC to fill in, you know, an E6 or 7 about an E5, but... That happens sometimes in the military, uh, if that makes any sense. Just say, "Hey, how'd it go?" You know, or, or or a guy you can trust.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It really comes down to absolute trust, and, and you earn that trust over time. You know, it's not like a not like a PFD shows up off the turnip truck, straight straight from you know basic training AIT, and then you like put him in charge. No, they have to earn that over time, but. You see a lot of that, you know. You you'd be really amazed, even now in the army, how how you know mature young kids are. Because you got to think, man, back in your day of being in the army, how many how many people in your formation had a combat patch?
0: None at that time.
1: Yeah, not very many. I mean, most of the Gulf War guys, you know, had probably already left the army, especially in the younger ranks. Yep. Now you see these guys, you know, they show up. You know, every person in your unit. Well, I would say not now because deployments have slowed down, but. You know, in those days, man, I'd look at a kid, you know, as a battalion sergeant major who was a young sergeant. Hell, I'd give him, you know, hey, you're in charge of this truck and turn them loose in Afghanistan and say, if a bad dude shoots at you, shoot at him, and nobody's going to ask you a question. But you know, that trust is is really built over time, obviously.
0: And at that time, you know, probably in reality, one out of one out of ten to twenty soldiers had a combat patch when I when I was in drum. Right. In in. You know what what we did we would just like brag drum, uh, I mean there's a lot of shit talking between at that time Brag and drum. those were the two most deployed units or most deployed divisions in the military from my from my memory and knowledge was Brag and drum. We fucking went everywhere and trained oh. constantly. well, Before I went to Korea, my XO, we had one last field problem, and it was a live fire exercise, Apaches, the whole nine. We were attached to Triple Deuce Infantry, huge raid on a village, right? Dropped off in Blackhawks, patrolled through the night, and then we did the breach going into the uh, triple-strand fence on the outside. Once we breached it, and and you'll laugh at this because my XO is like, hey, Snyder, uh, your new squad leader, yeah, you know, I need you to keep an eye—not like eye on him, like write him up—but hey, let me know how he did. He had just come from the MPs, and they're like, "He's like, you're basically going to be pulling Overwatch for this whole thing to see how the the squad does, because you don't want to look like idiots when you're attached to the infantry either, right?" And I right. was I was good at nav. I'd done these fucking field problems, I don't know how many times, because you're constantly doing them. So when you do a a live fire. You do usually a dummy day or an inert day, an inert night, and then you do a live day and a live night. Um, or that's how we did it in drum. Is that generally how you guys do it? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, absolutely. So you do, you do a dry walk through with no nothing, then you do a blank run through with blanks, and then you do a, the, the night run through. So you, we, you know, I used to laugh about that all the time. As an engineer squad leader in the 82nd Airborne Division, I would support a battalion. You know, there were six companies in the battalion. So I, my guys would go out to a field problem for, for two weeks, you know, doing live fires, and I'd literally, by the end of it, I'd had done so many live fires, you know, most of the infantry squads, they were doing four. We'd end up doing like 25 to 30.
0: Yep. What happened in that specific case when we did the, um, the, the day and the night on the second run, we popped live Bangalores, right? And when you were talking about, like, more high speed units. It's a 10-second delay, and you haul ass and get the fuck out of the way and dive out of the way. Bangalore blows up. A, a Bangalore is uh, full of composition B four explosives. It's actually uh, what we use for the uh, when we storm Normandy to not to to actually get through. But anyway, so we're watching this, and all I had to do uh, as I'm watching this was I had an infantry dude with me, and we pulled Overwatch for when the engineers came up and rigged up the time fuse and the debt cord and breached. We just pulled overwatch. Once it blew, we came up, we popped a smoke, or excuse me, we fired a flare to green or red, and then we popped a smoke, if this makes sense for those that weren't in the military. So basically what happens, the engineers go up, We, ha- me and the infantry dude pull overwatch, the triple strand blows up, then we go back up there The the engineers run up. They make sure it's clear. And then the infantry comes flying through when we tell them to, which that never fucking happens because they come flying through anywhere. At least that happened in drum. So we blow this thing up two or three times in a row in the same spot, which I knew was a no, no, because the ground gets soft. So when we finally got to the live night fire. That fucking thing just slinkied straight up and straight down. Right. It did not breached the triple strand it just flung up in the air and went down and so i am thinking oh fuck this is a problem well you being in all the different positions you've been in the poor little private that was lazy didn't bring the fucking bolt cutters right so i can hear whirly where's the bolt cutters and he says i didn't bring them i brought a leatherman and you don't want to look like an idiot in front of the infantry like this especially the triple deuce So Whirly's up there with a Leatherman trying to cut the triple strand. And I'm sitting on a M249 or a a squad automatic weapon. And the infantry dude's yelling at me, what the fuck is going on? And I'm like, dude, this is not good because the Apaches that are coming in, everything's getting fucked up, right? The, the, The time hacks are off. And so by the time it's all said and done, the infantry flies up and some dude yells, let's just body breach it which at that time I thought was a bad idea because I'd never really seen it work well. It really didn't work well, uh, as I see a bunch of guys tangled up in Constantina wire uh, trying to get through this fucking thing. And so this was my last stint at drum when this happened. And once that thing went totally to shit, the, the triple strand didn't blow, everything got called off. Um, some people call it a hot wash. It's a after action review and AAR when we had that, I was starting to be enlightened of how the military really worked. Cause at that time I was an E3 or an E4 before I went to Korea. And now looking at you going through all of those different things, you got to be in the position to where you had to analyze how much got fucked up and, and why. And I'm only bringing this story up. How many times in your career, when you were in a position of authority, where you literally just looked at everybody and like, "What in the fuck were you doing?" Once, ten times, a hundred times, like,
1: uh, I would say that I probably, I probably said that every day what I got <laughs> from, from first turn on. There was every day that I probably looked at people and said, "You know, what the hell were you thinking?" And but the bad part about an AER is, you know, you can't. You got to focus on the good and the bad. A lot of times there's just bad. You know, so you got to find creative ways to, like, you know, placate people and be like, oh, yeah, you know, you did really good. You showed up today, you had both pair of boots on, you did both pay, your, your pair of boots were tied. So we, that's a good one. But from that point on, you know, life sucked for you. And, and yeah, that's, I've done that quite a few times, probably more times than I care to remember. It's probably one of the worst parts about the job. Is you know having to tell people that they're not good because you know they put a lot of effort into things and they they get out there and they're they're working hard and they think they did this great thing and it just turns into a shit show. I mean, and that's that's what happens. You know, you you blow the Bangalore up. You think the breach is open up. The infantry guys come running. Oh shit, can't do it. I had the whole thing happen to me as a squad leader at JRTC. We're getting ready to breach into the mount site, and the grunts tell me, "Hey, Sarge, we don't need the engineers. We're not. We're gonna we're gonna handle this. We got it. We got it." So next, I'm like, "Okay, well." I'll just sit back here in the back, and I waited, and then all of a sudden, you know, ten minutes later, I hear engineers, engineers. I got to go up there, and here's five grunts, you know, rolled up in the triple stand, screaming and hollering because it's ripping their uniforms apart, cutting them all out over because, you know, they just had a hundred grunts run over the top of them. And then I go to break out the, the the wire cutters to cut the wire, and of course the dude, the the infantry first sergeant, trying to tell me how to cut wire. I'm like, dude, really? <laughs> you can't tell me how to cut wire. And It's my job to cut wire. I could have done this, you could have been in there, no problem. You know. And and it's just that was one of the unique things that I, I liked about the military. In fact, I've been in several of those briefings where I got done and I walk out and my boss would look at me and like say, Hey Sergeant Major, what size shoe do you wear? I'm like, Oh, what do you mean? What size shoe do you wear? I said, I got size eleven. He goes, Man, I've never seen somebody shove a size eleven boot up someone's ass and they think they did a good job. <laughs> You know, you had to kind of move it around, and, and there's other times where I held no punches and I just let them have it with both barrels because you know it was absolute stupidity. And sometimes they needed a reality check to get back into life. And but I think, you know, that information coming from somebody that is, that like you said is well respected has a good name for themselves. They look at it like, okay, we screwed up. And 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 you know, if there's a hundred guys in the room, ninety of them are going to walk out and be like, damn, we let him down. The other ten are going to be like, ah, that dude don't know what he's talking about, but. You know, that's just kind of the military as a whole. But I, I never really liked telling people they were dumbasses. It wasn't a fun fun time thing to do because, you know, you do it and then you feel bad about doing it because in in the end you're you're crushing somebody's soul, you know what I'm saying? And that's just that's a bad thing. But sometimes they needed to have their souls crushed so they could get back, you know, a reality check to get back in life and be like, Hey, I screwed that up. I gotta be better next time because people are counting on me to do my job and if I can't do my job, well then it creates this huge ripple effect that affects everything. You talked about, you know, helicopters flying around, you know, helicopters cost a lot of money to fly, fuel, armament, all that stuff. And, you know, you just can't be wasting those assets. So you got to be as close to perfect all the time as possible. So, yeah, more times than I care to remember. Well,
0: I, I, um, I, you know, this is uh, lighthearted but funny. I had mentioned this on a podcast or two about the two drunk guys knocking on everyone's door. Uh, yelling out, um, "Alert! Alert!" Because um, when you're in Korea, you have to be at the ready. So that was that was Tetrault and Sergeant Carl or Carl. Uh, remember Crazy Carl? He was like the fattest Not fat crazy. guy I've ever met.
1: Yeah, but he was. I, I lost touch with him over the years, but man, he was he was a funny dude. And you know, that was I looked at Korea. I told my wife this a lot. I went to Korea, and it was like being in college. You know, it's like <laughs> you could you could drink as much as you wanted, and as long as you did your job and everything was good, you know, real no problem, But we definitely, I remember, do you remember me and Dominguez doing door checks, like we're jumping out of an airplane, we're jump masters, you know, obviously yeah. both of us were jump masters, doing <laughs> door checks under the fourth floor window while holding a <laughs> bottle of Jim <laughs> Beam in one hand taking a You know, nobody in the right mind does that, but when you put a bunch of testosterone in one room and you've been drinking, you know, you all of a sudden become Superman. But I will tell you, we did a lot of, we did a lot of drinking, but... I was one of the crazy few people who went to Korea. I went as a staff sergeant and left left as a sergeant first class. So I actually got promoted in Korea. Most people go to Korea as a staff sergeant get get demoted, you know, to sergeant because they done something stupid, but I had after you left Korea, dude, I literally for the last 2 months locked myself in my room. Because I realized if I kept doing the stupid things I was doing, that somebody would be like, my reputation would not be able to hold me any longer. And I was about ready to get the amble dropped on me. <laughs> so I went from being the crazy dude to the muck sitting in a room eating ramen, trying to stay you know, sane so I didn't get hammered.
0: Yeah, I have to say, though, like, there are people in life throughout. I, I mean, you could ask me about 300 people in Korea and uh, no homo here. I can't remember any of them, but I remembered you. You were always a solid, fair dude, you know, and you looked at things from a objective perspective where you, you'd look at something and, you know, if you needed to be a dick, you are a dick. If you didn't need to be a dick, you're like, ah, don't fucking worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. We'll figure it out. And in the Army, you find that sometimes, and obviously I spent seven or eight years in and you spent 30, but you find that there are people that end up in a position because of time and service Cause they just stayed there that long at that point in time when I was in, I don't know if that happens now where you could potentially end up with a squad leader that is fucked up like a football bat because he'd been in long enough. And that, that was something that was unique, you know, to me. And usually those guys will get weeded out fairly, you know, quickly. And then you would get a a squad leader that you truly, whether he, you know, PCS, would ETS, you know, he went, you know, whatever he did, you're like, fuck, that dude kept me sane. And that was one of the things I will say with you is you were good at keeping people sane because Korea sucked. And it, it was good to have you there. You know, take that for what it's worth.
1: I think you're right on. There, there are, I think there are promotions in the Army, even when I was there, that, that were, I like to call a mercy promotion. Hey, dude, you put in 15 years, we're going to promote you to sergeant first class. But that's as far as you're going to go because you're not any good. And then there was some that you would see that wouldn't get promoted. And you're like, how, how the hell does this guy got not get promoted? I mean, he's like a superstar. And as you know, a lot of promotions in the Army were based on the SOR the system and how you rated people. And A lot of people had a hard time telling somebody they were jacked up. I never had a problem. You know, if you were jacked up and you were, you know, and I was a first sergeant and you were in my company and you were, I had 12 squad leaders and you were number 12 of 12, well, I made sure it said you were twelve of twelve on your NCOER because the world needed to know that because you didn't want people to move on that would would cause you know especially during you know Iraq and Afghanistan dude there were people dying constantly man and you didn't want you couldn't have incompetent leaders man I mean I got I got sent to um, I got sent to Af- well actually Iraq um, so I was supposed to be I was a HHC first sergeant of a battalion. And then uh, my brigade sergeant major come in one day and said, hey, man, you're not going to work here anymore. You're gonna, we're two months from deployment. Hey, we're, I'm going to move you to brigade. So I got moved to brigade. I spent all this time getting people trained up, ready to go, and all of a sudden I had to leave the company. Not, not a fun time. Well, I'm up at HAC, and about nine months later, you know, the, the sergeant major walks in, sets on my couch, and he's like, on a Friday afternoon, which is, which is you know, kind of odd. You know, the brigade sergeant major just doesn't roll into your office on a Friday night at 1700 and ask you how things are going with your wife. So I knew something was up, and he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to have to send you down range to go back to the battalion I just took you out of because they had a problem with the first sergeant. I'm like, okay, I'll go, you know, because I wanted to get back in the fight. So I ended up in the you lab, know, and when I'm in the lab, I'm talking to this, you know, I got this company, and I got a, I got a platoon leader and a platoon sergeant who are fighting each other constantly. You know, they go on a mission, and they're just acting fools you know squad leaders were coming to me saying hey you know that dude's incompetent i want to get rid of him. what can we do so i said well let me go see firsthand so i i go out you know of course when i'm out with them nothing happens because they're not going to be stupid when i'm there so i just kept getting them all the time and i remember i finally made a decision and i i went to the battalion leadership and said hey i'm going to remove of this, hey, one hey shift my shift your headset
0: again man you're you're coming in a little bad sorry man
1: okay how about now can you hear me you're perfect
0: yep yeah, you're good
1: Technology is crazy. But, you know, so this new sergeant was not doing his job, so I ended up removing him. And one of the squad leaders walked up to me and said, I just want to thank you, first sergeant, because your professional decision has drastically improved my personal life. And right then and there, I knew that I'd made the right decision. You know, that guy probably shouldn't have been there, and I got a got move out of there. So. But, man, when you start playing with people's lives and determine, you know, how much money they're going to make whether they get promoted or not that's that's a lot of lot of um lot of responsibility that I didn't take lightly for sure
0: yeah you yelled at me once i can't remember exactly why uh i think i picked you up over my head or i might have punched you in the kidney i cannot remember but i remember you threw my ass at parade rest and said quit fucking around uh was the gist of it i'm not sure what it was yeah i,
1: I think you punched me in the kidney yeah which was Which was not fun. I may have crossed a line. May have, (laughs) and that that was probably one of those ones where our relationship and, and I think you understood for the most part, even though I was an NCO and you were a specialist, that you could do things because of our relationship, playing softball, you know, doing all that stuff. But you crossed the line that day and and I snapped you back into reality and then we never had a problem after that. Well, and I think I could have punched
0: you in the kidney if there wasn't 20 people fucking watching. And you probably would have been like, all right, dickhead, don't do that shit. But there was a lot of people watching. So you had to be. This is how I took it. You you probably would have just smacked the shit out of me if it was private and said, don't fucking do that again. But in this case, there's people watching. So you had to put your professional face on, snap me at parade rest so people knew. I had crossed the line and that was not okay. And I mean, I didn't Fuck it. I, I knew at that point, oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that shit. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that one probably, that one sent the message to you quickly. And, and the difference is you, you were able to take that moment in time and realize that you had done something and never do it again. Some people, same thing happens to them and they just continue with their stupidity because they can't separate, you know, professional conduct from personal conduct, which was always baffling to me. But, uh,
0: <laughs> you know. speaking of professional and personal conduct what happened to dominguez because he was crazy as shit awesome dude um but he from what i remember he was kind of fearless and uh a bit of a live wire what ended up happening to him
1: so paul paul went on and had a great career ended up retiring he retired out of the army after 20 years he made it to first sergeant and uh him and his wife are currently working for the department of defense in hawaii he works does some type of the civil service job out there for the department of defense, you know? And I think he, he saw something on the wall too and said, Hey, I, I made it this far. I might want to get out of here before something bad happened. And he left and, you know, he was, but like I said, he was a very confident guy. You know, you want to talk about a guy who taught me a lot is the young, young staffs are going to JRTC multiple times over several years. Uh, he was my personal OC every time I went there. And he was, he, he taught me a lot of how to be a good leader and how to do things. And, but he had a wild fight, and I think, you know, I think back through my career, there was quite a few leaders that I had that were first sergeant Ayakimo Fallonico, you know, any, anybody who listens to, this video, listens to this podcast that knows the engineers, Iokimo Fallonico was probably one of, the, one of the, he's like a legend inside the, the regiment. But, you know, back in 1994, when he was my first sergeant, you know, and he, I'm the operations sergeant, he calls me in his office on a Friday night and opens up his bottom drawer of his desk, it's full of Budweiser, you know. You couldn't get away with that kind of stuff nowadays, you
0: know. No, I, I have heard. I had heard of him from you, and I have heard of him many times after, uh, as far as him being a, a you know a, a legend. And I think it was you that told me first. But he was the kind of guy if two people had issues, he'd throw boxing gloves on and be like, "All right, settle it. Go ahead, and just have them beat the shit out of each other."
1: Great. So back in my you know Alpha three hundred and seven, back in the early nineties, you know we had a policy that said, hey, if you get you get a choice for Article fifteen, you can either get an Article fifteen, which is UCMJ action. You know, you got in trouble, you're going to be punished for it, or you could put the boxing gloves on with Falonico, and Falonico would beat the piss out of you. I've seen many dudes walk out of his office with a black eye, but like, peace out, bitches. I'm going to the club because he got his ass beat by the first turn. He didn't get an Article fifteen, but you know that kind of. Uh, in those days set the conditions for us to be so successful because you had leaders that were just really looking out for you and you would do anything for them. And, you know, you want to talk about, you know, I told you I'm a JRTC instructor at a high school now. I actually had, in the last two years, this year and last year, I had both of uh, Fallon grandsons in my class. You want to talk oh, about, awesome. you know... a you got to do the right thing, or else they're going to go home and tell Grandpa that you're an idiot, and then I'm going to get a phone call from you know I, Kimo Salonico, and he's going to be like, "I'm going to come down there and choke the shit out of you," and quite frankly, I don't want to hold the chicks <laughs> spit jokes out.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. The um, I well, man, I got to say, I I um, you know, I've brought you, like I said, I brought you up before on a podcast a few different you know times, and I, and my wife was laughing because I said, um, I think I'm going to call T today and see if he'll hop on a you know on a podcast because there i i had a you know a fairly rough i didn't have the best uh childhood in the world and i had a a dude um you know when in high school uh my football coach who kinda kept me from getting in in super deep shit and then uh you know I kinda had a guy at drum, not my squad leader my squad leader an idiot that kinda kinda like you you know from the outside because you know they're you know they' there there's a you you get one squad leader that you know you may be in you know, first platoon, first squad, and he's in third platoon, third squad, but you know, you're kind of hanging out with him and, and looking to him for guidance. Your squad leader's probably not going to take too kindly to that generally, but I, I it was the good one. to have you there because it, it helped, you know, little did you probably know at the time, but it helped shape me in the, in the future. And, you know, for even when I got out, now I, I do remember when I was trying to get out after I was all fucked up, I found out that, um, if I was hearing impaired by more than thirty percent, I could get like free hunting licenses. Because by the time it was said and done, I was ready to get the fuck out of the army. I was getting migraines. <laughs> I wanted to go hunting more. And I think, did you go down with me when I took my hearing test?
1: Yeah, I got, I got <laughs> of the joy of taking you down several times. <laughs> and I, I, re- I remember the, um, the, the audiologist, you know, the guy who does the test, looking at you and telling you, "Hey, dude, you can't be." You can't be that bad. It's just, it's not possible. And then, and then you finally came clean and told them what, what was going on. I mean, you were you were hurt, but, you know, you had an alternative motive to try to get the benefits out of a better disability, you know. And what did, you, uh, did you ever get any disability from the military at all?
0: You know what happened, which is uh, pretty crazy. So i I went to Carson and, you know, was there for... And I get, I think I actually reenlisted again. What, what ended up happening is I kept getting these migraines. Right. And when I get the migraines, I would vomit uncontrollably. Like I had to get a spinal tap a couple times, like, you know, truly like, you know, vomiting up blood and shit. And when you, when that first happens, there's so many people that, that fake injuries to, you know, and they go to, um, you know, the, the, the aid station or the, you know, you go see the medic that you have a captain in there that he doesn't want to deal with you. And he thinks you're, he's like, yeah, whatever. Get the fuck out of here. Here's some Motrum that I was so fucked up. He sent me to specialists like a neuro, like a neuropsychologist. And um, I had to get a bunch of MRIs where they figured out I had um, calcium buildup on my frontal lobe. And they couldn't figure out what was they couldn't figure out what was going on right they just couldn't figure out what the hell was up with the migraine they gave me some medication the first one they gave me my tongue swelled up and I almost died because it closed my airways off and so my poor ex-wife was sticking popsicle sticks down my throat to push my tongue down because it swelled up so bad so I could could breathe you know like yeah not to make it sound worse than it was but it was a pill you put on your tongue it dissolved anyway it made my tongue swell up and they were like, look, man, you're not going to be able to be in a combat MOS with these issues. And I'm like, well, what's my other alternative? And they were like, well, you can reclass. And I can't remember exactly what all the options were. You can get out. And I think I got and I say I didn't get anything. I think I got 10 percent, which is basically, you know, nothing. Which, you know, when I first got out, I went to the VA. Uh, for for migraine medication. And that was the last time I ever went to the VA. It was the biggest, most fucked up system I'd ever seen in my life. I had buddies going to the VA that literally like should have been on suicide watch. It just wasn't good. So luckily enough, I I had a guy hire me that's brother was a general, took great care of me. I had great insurance. I've never went to the DAV, the VA. I thought, man, I'm not gonna milk the system like everyone else um, and just handled it on my own. And I, as as everyone knows that listen to the podcast, I still have horrible fucking migraines, but I've, I've learned to adapt and I'm a hell of a lot better off than a lot of other, uh, a lot of other soldiers. So I'm the last one that's going to complain about that. I, although I do laugh, my buddy's wife got out as a captain with shin splints and got 40% disability with shin splints. I took a rocket up my ass uh, and I didn't get anything. So, but man, there's so many other soldiers that are way worse off than I am I got a great life so I'm not gonna bitch um I just have to take migraine pills every now and then so
1: I, I mean I think the medical system has is, is gotten better over time I mean I used to joke all the time you know when I retired after 30 years in the military my my medical records was about three quarters of an inch thick I mean I mean, you know when you're a leader you, just, you don't go to sick call you don't you don't go to see the doctor because it creates a bad image and and I probably there's a lot of things that I have now that if I would have probably had checked out when I was in the military, I would have probably been better off. You know, I had a I had a, uh, a surgeon once tell me that I have an ankle that looks like an 85 year old man. You know, that's kind of disheartening when you're 50 and you have an ankle that's got that much arthritis in it. But you know, that's that's just one of the things. But I was just I was just wondering how that kind of worked out for you. You know, there's a total difference between when you leave the Army as a retiree versus uh, just a, a soldier who just did a couple of years and then said, okay, I'm done. So, But at least, you know, at least you didn't do this thing and become a pack
0: clerk. Well, man, I, I, the way I am, my innate nature, my, my being, I, I can't fuck over the system, right? Like, when I say that, meaning I didn't want to take, like, this huge advantage over the system I just wanted, at the, at the end of it, I was running towards the end of my enlistment. Whether I was going to get out normally or get out from a medical, I was just like, you know, I just want to get out and go hunting. That was kind of the end of it, right? I just wanted to go hunting. And so I thought, you know, when I got out, uh, it was like I think three months shy of when my enlistment was anyway. So it was kind of a moot point. I, you know, I had a, a package that goes along With the medical, when you get out, I can't remember what all it was as far as all these different things with school. Anyway, I didn't end up using any of it. I got a good job, and I just worked my ass off at that job. And obviously, I am where I am now. And the more and more soldiers I talked to and helped, once we started going to the ward with the entire world, I thought, man, I need to just shut the fuck up and move on, because I've got it pretty good. I mean, once we were at war for two decades that's when the problems really started to happen my issues are pretty minor compared to what else was going on
1: yeah no you're sorry hey but you know i think you made a um you know i made a career choice to stay in the army for 30 years you made a career choice to get out and, and join the hunting world and dude you are you are killing it man
0: yeah it's it's going good i um you know i mean it's it's um it i am very very blessed with with everything going on and I think that, uh, and I was talking to a, a buddy of mine who who kind of business partners and some other stuff. You know, I, I try to be very giving, not not for social media presence or anything else. I just try to help as many people as I can. And whether I'm giving them a bow or giving them advice or whatever, I kind of gotten the outlook. Of if I stop being that giving, I bet whatever's giving me all these great opportunities that i have that might go away too and so when people message me and be like dude you're crazy for spending eight hours answering questions on a sunday well i got to hunt eight months last year i'm not that crazy shit's working out right like I i can't complain and so I just try to help out as many people as I can, and I've made—I mean, I'm pretty blunt. I've made a lot of enemies along the way. There's no shit there. I mean, there's some people that fucking hate me, but you know, overall, if I'm doing a lot more good than I am uh, pissing people off, I think I'm, I'm doing okay.
1: Yeah, I, I look at—you know—one of the things I try to do throughout my military career was be a mentor for the young guys, and and I think that's you know—there's a lot. I get a lot of phone calls still to this day from people that are in the military asking me, "Hey, what should I do about this, that?" You know, and it's that mentorship thing and I think you're providing that same service for the you know, for the hunting industry. And and your way your ways are different than other people and I mean hey it it works. But I'm gonna tell you what, I, I look back from the Snyder that I knew early in the nineties, you know, Korea time frame till now, and you have matured into being a, a phenomenal person. And I mean I, I look at your Instagram post all the time. I mean I'm sitting there yesterday watching you know, eight hours of asking questions, and it seems like the questions are repetitive, but I've never once ever seen you say, hey, dude, stop, why don't you just Google that and figure it out? Because I think you have that that teaching mentality about yourself where you want everybody to be successful in what they do, and if you have to answer the same question 40 times because somebody can't read the whole string, then you do that, and I think that's pretty freaking awesome, man.
0: Yeah, I I try, and, you know, along the way, obviously, like, I have kind of learned that, you know, sometimes the advice that you give, I, I'm not a, you know, words of affirmation may not be what you get. You may need to learn, man up, dude, rub some dirt in your crotch and suck it up. Like quit being a pussy. Some people need to hear that. Other people might need to hear, man, you're doing good. Just stay with it, stay focused. And, and I've tried to learn as much as I possibly can what certain people need to hear. And if you are in the military, I have found that you probably need to hear suck it up, drive on, quit being a pussy. And if you were raised by five sisters, you probably need words of affirmation. You need to hear you're a great man and you're doing good because you're not going to. Like for me, when I when, when, when like Clay Lancaster was on the podcast the other day, he's a outfitter guide. When he calls me, he tells me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. I need that, you know, like. I have no doubt. If you see me do something stupid, you'll call me and be like, "Hey, dummy, the fuck are you doing?" I, I, I need. That's how I'm, I'm wired. Where other people may, that may crush their soul. They, they may need to hear. They need may, may need different tact, I guess. So.
1: No, I, I, I agree with you. I look. Let's talk hunting for a little bit, man. I look at uh, all your ventures around the world and all the things you do, and and all the people who come to you for mentoring, advice and stuff like that. I, I think. You know, that's one thing I like about hunting. I like hunting because it allows me to interact with people, you know, even in the Army. Kids, you know, young kids would see me like, first time, where are you going? I'm going hunting tomorrow. Hey, I've been out hunting, you know, for the last 10 days, and I haven't seen anything, you know. Do you think you could show me a few spots? And, you know, I'd tell a kid, you know, hey, meet me here at 5 o'clock in the morning. i take him in the woods and say, get this tree right here, dude. You're probably going to see a deer. And, you know, two hours later, I get, you know, I hear a gunshot or something, or I get a text message, hey, First time I shot a deer, man, can you come help me? You know, and I see the excitement and I think you know, I think that's what the hunting industry is really about. It's about mentoring people to carry on those traditions. You know, I I learned I learned my hunting traditions from my grandfather and my father passed them on to me. You know, I got two boys and I, I passed it to them and I I'm at the age now though where I if I go hunting and I have people with me, I have more I feel more uh, fulfilled if they end up shooting an animal versus me shooting an animal. Does that make sense? Do you feel yourself finding
0: that? Oh, yeah. yeah, I I tell you what, there was a, you know, I got to hunt so much for a while before I was really known that there was a string of three or four years there that I was really doing a lot more helping than hunting. And I just liked photographing the adventure and helping a guy get an animal. And, And honestly, there was a few people in the industry and they still do they kind of have it out for me where they were like oh yeah you know, he never kills anything he just helps out whatever to where I thought man it, I no matter how much good intentions I have I'm going to have to shoot a lot of animals and not help as many people as I would like because of how the industry works because truly I mean I love hunting and and, and I always want to hunt but I much like yourself I really like to see the enjoyment of someone when they get their first animal or some epic tag they drew and also man i i like photography i really like photographing the you know the adventure and 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 you i mean you that was one of the common things we had obviously was fishing and hunting when we were in korea you are a crazy crazy fisherman i mean you hunt your ass off as well but you fish like a fool. I, I would assume you kind of carried that through in Washington and were salmon and steelhead fishing, just like when you were in Missouri, your entire career. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, here's a funny story. So when I, when I got selected to be a SAR major, we had to rank order all these different jobs. And I literally ranked order the jobs based on hunting and fishing locations. So like there was a there was one on there for Fort Carson. So I said, Oh Fort Carson, man, have some great hunting out there. Uh Fort Riley, you know, think about the white tail and, and out there. And I kind of went through it that way. It never worked out that way. They just kind of sent me to where they wanted to. I, I don't think I ever got my first or second choice ever. But I always uh tried to make life better. I remember I got out to um Fort Lewis. You know, I'm a, originally from Michigan, so I grew up, you know, salmon fishing and stuff like that. And one. When I got out there, dude, I, I went full bore, man, um, and I was on the river every waking moment I could I could do, and and I I loved it. The Pacific Northwest was probably one of the most beautiful places I had ever been to, uh, and some about you know being in the up in the you know the Olympic Mountains, steelhead fishing on a remote stream where there's nobody around you because you you hiked in you know ten miles to it or whatever, and and but I you know, I, like I said, I grew up hunting and fishing, it was something that was really predominant in my family, and even to this day, you know, my wife tells me all the time, you know, if, if you wouldn't have so many hobbies, man, you could probably have a lot more fishing gear or hunting gear, but I kind of have to spread it between two things, and, and I really enjoy it, I find it, it, it's my, my piece, you know, I, I hunt fish a lot here in Missouri, I fish the streams, I fish the lakes, you know, I tournament fish, I'm a tournament bass fisherman, you know, I got a couple bass clubs I'm in, I get out and Try to win a little money doing that, but you know, when it comes hunting season, I put the I put the fishing stuff
0: away and I, I go hunting. You know, that's kind of kind of my thing. So, you, Well, you um, when we were talking in uh, in Washington, when you came to that Sportsman Show, you you knew you were getting, uh, you. I mean, I think at that time you knew you were getting out pretty quick, uh, and I think you were somewhat unsure if you were going to go back uh, to the hinterland or or if you were going to you know what? Because I remember I tried to hire you or at least. Gave you the option to be our tactical rep. Is Missouri, do you just, are you, is that just home because of uh, the fishing and the turkey hunting and whitetail, or was it because of family, or why'd you end up going back there?
1: Um, you know, I, I, you know, I went, so first of all, I, I was, I, I remember that day vividly. I was out, we went to the sportsman show. I found out, remember, because we, we had, we had uh, reunited through Instagram of all places. You know, I, I got an Instagram account because my son was in college and he wanted to stay in contact with me. You know, college kids—they don't want to call you. They'll send you an Instagram message. I don't know what the hell's up with that. But I—I I was sitting there one night. And I found you. I sent you a note, and I said, "Hey, is this the Aaron Snyder from Korea?" And you know, we—we we linked up, and then you told me you were coming out there. But I remember walking to the booth that day. You guys were—you guys were with. Um, so did you have a booth for that day Phel- Phelps no, and triple yeah. X yep yep you guys are sitting there and, and I, I walked in there and then when I walked up to the booth there was about 20 people that had had you straight surrounded they were talking past they were talking everything under the sun and and I stood there back there for about 20 minutes watching you talk to all these people and I you know I waited my turn because I realized you you were there for a reason but when the, when we reconnected right there on the spot it was like we had never left each other you know and it was phenomenal and then, I remember you took me for a walk. You said, "Come on man, let's walk around." So we walked to a couple different um, different booths, and you took me to I don't remember I don't remember who it was, but they had a gun booth. Do you remember who that was?
0: Um, was oh that might have been Christians in arms or proof research, I'm not sure.
1: Whoever it was, the guy there started asking me some questions about my military service or whatever. And uh, I remember that like, you looked at the guy, and you said, so what do you think? And you, he said, yeah, I think he'll do just fine. And I was like, what the heck was up with that, Snyder? And you're like, hey, man, that was like a, like a mini-job interview. I'm like, what? You're like, yeah, it was a mini-job interview. That guy, you know, is a pretty prominent guy or whatever. I wanted to kind of see what he thought about you or whatever. And that's when you told me about the job at Kaparo, uh coming to be the tactical rep, You know, and I – dude, I – I got in the truck that day, because obviously my wife dropped me off there, and she went shopping in Portland, did a bunch of stuff, and I was spend some time with you there at the show, but I remember getting in the truck and telling her that you had offered me a job, and I was so excited, man, I was like, oh my God, what a what a great thing, you know, because when you're transitioning out of the military, obviously you've you got to look for a job, you know, I got a nice retirement from the Army, but it's not something that I could, I could live on it, but I wouldn't, you know, have what I have now, so We were really excited about it, and and I just, my daughter had just had a, we just had my granddaughter, and, you know, and I never thought that becoming a grandfather would be such a, such a phenomenal experience for me, and, you know, the wife and I talked about the job at Caparo back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and a lot, you know, there was, there was huge benefits to doing it, and then there was also drawbacks, obviously, the drawbacks were... I would probably would be spending a lot of time with you traveling here, or there, hunting this, doing that. I'd spend a lot of time away from my granddaughter. And, you know, at that time, you know, my granddaughter was probably the most important thing in my life, believe it or not, because, you know, going through all those new experiences and everything. And, and it just, I got to thinking about it. And I said, well, I'd spend a lot of time going away from my kids, you know, in the military, obviously. I mean, I miss graduations. I miss birthdays. I miss soccer games, baseball games, all kinds of things, too, military and things of that nature. And I just, I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to miss all that. And I knew that I couldn't devote, I knew I probably couldn't devote all the time that you would have needed of me to be able to fulfill my obligations without putting something on the back burner. And I think that's the, that's the number one reason why I, I didn't come work for you. And I'm, you know, even to this day, I'm still blown away that you even offered me the job. But Missouri kind of fell in my lap too. My brother-in-law is in the military and, and the school here, the high school had a job opening and, and he called me up and, and it kind of fell in my lap. So that's how I ended up in Missouri. I mean, I think, is the fishing and hunting and everything great? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, you know, you, you know, public land is probably one of my fortes. I don't think I've hunted any, I haven't hunted a piece of private property in probably 20 years everything I do is on public land, and I got the military fort right here next to me, and there's probably, you know, 400,000 acres that I can hunt, you know, whenever I want, you know, do I have to deal with people? Yeah, I got to deal with people just like you do, but, you know, that's kind of how I ended up here in Missouri, you know, because the fishing and hunting's phenomenal, and and I didn't want to go to Michigan because Michigan was turning into a shithole with what's going on up there with the politics and all that stuff, and I just didn't want to go back to Michigan. So that's how we ended
0: up here. Yeah, you've had good success for public land whitetail hunting. I got to say, I'll give you an idea. I I brought this up before, but uh, I I shot a a pile of whitetails last year. and Somebody messaged me and said, uh, are you going to hunt public land next year to prove all the doubters wrong that you can do the same thing on public land? And I'm like, oh, I can tell you the doubters are 100 percent correct. There's no fucking way. I could do what I did last year on public land. Like I'm in no denial. west Western United States, I'm a public land guy. I, I love hunting public land, but when you start talking uh, turkey and whitetails, I, I mean, there are some spots that are great public land hunting. Um, but for the most part, time constraints, you know, the whole nine yards, not knowing where, you know you live away you know, the success you've had on public land is pretty amazing, especially with all the yahoos you got to deal with. And and I haven't hunted on a military base a bunch, some on Fort Carson, but it can be kind of a pain depending upon how they set it up. They rotate the different areas you can hunt on Carson. Like Monday, you may be in one zone. Tuesday, you may be in another one. But yeah, you've had had pretty good luck.
1: Yeah, the military installations are definitely unique. Um, One good thing is, as through my training at Fort Leonard Wood, being stationed here two or three different times, and then now living here, I I pretty much, you know, I know Fort Leonard Wood like you know the back country of Colorado. You know, I know where every tree is. I know where every crevice is. I know where the draw is. I mean, I got it down pat. And I mean, that buck I killed this year um, is a tree that I found back in 2002 when I was here as a drill sergeant. You know, I found that area and kind of, you know, through... Through scouting, I was actually walking through the area with uh, with privates. And I found it, and, you know, a lot of great deer sign, a lot of great rubs and everything, and I kind of did my homework, and, and I figured it out. But, you know, it, it is challenging because um, I remember one year at Fort Bragg, you know, private land. You know, it's not private, it's public land. You know, you have to go to an area. You'll go to a shed, sign out, get in line. You only got so many spots for certain areas. But I, I got lucky, and I killed two bucks back-to-back. I killed one on a Saturday and one on a Sunday. And and I think in in North Carolina, you could kill three bucks at the time. But I noticed that after that, every time that I would go and sign out, there would be three or four trucks that would follow me into the hunting areas and literally follow me to wherever I was going hunting because they had realized, hey, that guy obviously knows where the deer are. Let's follow him. So I used to have to go on these big E&E missions, you know, drive up on this road, park a truck, get out like I was actually trying to go in the woods and go hunting and then wait for him to leave and get back in my truck and go to another area. And, and do is there a lot of pressure? Sure there is. There, You know, I I'm, I get up in a tree stand. You know, I got there at 5.30 in the morning. I'm, I'm sitting there, and, you know, at 6.55, here comes 400 walking through the area because they have no idea where they're going in area. You know, I deal with it, but I, I just try to do my best, and, you know, I think I got it figured out pretty well. I mean, I haven't killed no, you know, booners like you have, but, I mean, I've killed my share of really decent bucks. You know, I got seven or eight miles on the wall downstairs in my, my man cave that I look at every day and you know they bring back memories of how I what what I had to go through to get those deer. You know, I had to really work and, and do stuff. But public land is, is definitely a challenge around here because there's there's not a lot of it. I mean I'm sitting here in my backyard looking out and I got there's a there's a big cow pasture right behind my backyard that are, it's owned by this cattle company here. And dude there are some monster bucks that I see walking my side yard every day. That I could probably just step out my backyard and go hunt them and, and not have a problem. But you know, it's private property. You know? So I gotta hunt that stuff. And it just it works out that way. And but you know, you've helped me a lot too. You know, I, I know FOC is probably not your favorite thing in the world, but I remember sitting at a conference two years ago and sending you notes about, hey dude, what's FOC? What do I gotta do? And you you told me, Hey, get this insert, put this thing in here, do this, do that, dude. I will tell you what, my my game has gotten much better just from my, my tips that you've given me and things like that, and, and, you know, and stuff. And, you know, i I, I got to thank Bows, too, because I tell you what, I've been a Hoyt shooter all my life, and, and I love Hoyt. and they, I, People tell me, you know, that Hoyt suck, you need to get a different one. I'm like, dude, hey, everybody has their own. I'm not going to fault you because you shoot a Bowtech or you shoot a PSE or something. Hey, everybody has their own thing, but you know what? If you need help, I'll help you. But I'm not going to try to force you to go do something else. But you know them Hoyt bows, man, are are some killers, man. Especially in my world, man. I I sling arrows, and when I swing them, I don't miss. And you're usually only run a few yards away <laughs> and die. So it definitely works for me, man.
0: I, I tell you, it's funny you bring up Hoyt. I uh, I've went through a pile of different, you know, bows, and and uh, actually the fact I'm t- talking about this on this podcast will be, uh, maybe it'll be overlooked by some, so I don't have to answer so many messages. I uh. I had like this big, the last four weeks, three weeks, um, have been like nothing, but just crazy bow testing. I'm about to, you know, drive my, my wife crazy, honestly, cause she does this filming and the speeds and penetration tests. You can imagine living with me and she probably want to kill me, but man, I think I'm going to end up shooting a Hoyt Satori with carbon foam limbs, <laughs> uh, a, a metal riser, man. I just, it outshoots everything that I put it up against and, and, uh. That'll stir up all kinds of shit. But I've shot Hoyts off and on for ever. And the whole, you know, the the Matthews, PSE, Hoyt, Botech, whatever, Elite. Man, it's like vehicles. Like, I drive a Toyota. People fuck with me about that. But for what I do,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, I'm not going to tow a boat with that thing. But you're not going to want to follow me around in a Z71 on a mountain road, you know, a mining road looking for mountain goats. But we hook a boat up. Yeah, I'm going to be sucking hind titty behind you, right? I mean, it's just what works best. And a lot of it, you've put a lot of animals on the ground with a Hoyt. Why would you switch? That's, you know, that's your yeah. baby. I mean, that's the one that works. That's the one you feel comfortable with.
1: I think I think bows are like women. Once you find a good one, you never get rid of them, right?
0: Yeah, uh, that is true. And believe me, I've gotten rid of lots of good women and good bows that I look back at, and I'm like, fuck. And luckily... I'm in a position now, I, I think it only took four tries, but I've got a good one. And in the bow thing, it took a lot more than that. But backcountry hunting partners are not much different. Finding a wife might be easier than finding a backpack hunting partner, and I shit you not. It can be difficult.
1: <laughs> no, I, I know. I have I have several of my hunting buddies that, you know, they, they do some stupid things. You know, I, I told you, man, I... I take a buddy in, put him in a spot and say, All right, buddy, right here is where you need to be, be in this tree. I guarantee you that big eight point's gonna walk down this trail anywhere from seven twenty to nine twenty in the morning. He will be here. Just stay in this tree. What do they do? They go in there, they get up, they don't like it, they get down, they move to a different tree, and then at you know eight forty that deer walks through the area and they don't have a shot at him because they couldn't pay attention. And it's like, I told you exactly where to go, man. What do you do? <laughs> no, I've done the work for you, man. All you gotta do is do this or you know, I, I my next door neighbor um, when I lived on post was he wasn't a much much of a hunter, but he wanted to hunt all the time. So I took him out and dude, that dude, you know, here's a guy who one day hung his bow upside down in the tree. He had a whisker biscuit, you know, so his arrow didn't fall out when he had it hung upside down. Here comes a buck. He grabs the bow. He realizes the bow is upside down, or he's he's dropped his bow out of the tree, and it's like, dude, I wonder how you could even even kill a deer. But I I find joy in those times, you know. And those are the dudes, like you said, you're going to stay with forever. I Look at you and Frank, man. You and Frank are probably, I think you're connected at the hip somehow. You guys think hey, everything's the same and you've both got the mindset. And finding those true hunting partners that would get up, you know, bright and early with you and stick it out in the cold weather, those are few and far between, man, and I... You got to do some searching, man. But when you find the good one, don't ever get rid of them because the next—it's like that old adjective. The grass is always greener on the other side. It is, but it still has to be mowed. And <laughs> why go through the extra work to have to do things if you have a good one? Just keep them around, man.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's weird, like with Frank and I, because you know, we Frank and I don't hang out on the weekends. We don't. A lot of it's because I live up on the mountain, but you know, we don't. You know, have like a attached at the hip i mean frank and i haven't hung out for months but like hunting it's a totally different story like i know i can depend on frank to make it through and you know he's just a very unique uniquely tough individual that dude can just handle anything and he never panics and he's extremely tough and he's not he he doesn't boast about it he just does it and he's one of those guys that you could literally call 12 miles you know 12 miles in the wilderness be like dude i and I shot an elk and a mule deer. I'm solo and it's snowing. He'd be like, "Oh, I'll grab my hat and some whatever." And you you need Copenhagen? I'll grab a burrito and fuck. There he is, four hours later, uh, with a big backpack, like ready to help you. The dude's just unique. And you know, there's other guys that I'll hang out with every day that I I probably wouldn't go hunting with. Not not on an extreme hunt because when you talk about that sleep deprivation and food deprivation and, and and water, you know, you're 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 just getting crushed at every avenue and then you got the weather coming at you constantly and you know when you get crabby you got to have somebody that's going to bring you up you know that's or or if you get tired or you get you know unmotivated and it's hard to find guys like that you know it's hard to find guys that are always you know positive and and when you do yeah that's you've got something
1: special yeah no i i totally agree with you and you know i i kind of equivalent that to uh you know a lot of my you know students that I have now will ask me, you know, hey, you know, you were in the Army 30 years. I bet you have a lot of friends. I'm like, you know, no, I don't. I have a lot of acquaintances that I could be in a mall, you know, somewhere traveling and these great conversations, but friends in the Army, truly, friends in the Army, I probably have about 10, 10 to 12. And I think, you know, when you look at hunt partners, you have a lot of people that you hunt with that they're acquaintances when you hunt with them, but there's only about three probably max that you would say, all right, let's fill these packs on and go 12 miles in the back country and we're going to be able to make this, you know, happen. You know, I can imagine if one of them calls you up and say, Hey man, let's go hunting. you like, you'd find every story, you know, Oh no, I'm going to get my nails done or yeah. something, you know, <laughs> just to be able to not have to go with them because you, you know, it's going to be a lot of pain and it's just bad timing for, you know, people to be around you because you're, you're, you're probably not going to have much success because they're crazy in the things they do. And you know, i that's why i do a lot of hunting on my own you know my wife gets worried about me all the time you know you know i walk out of the house at 4 30 in the morning and i don't come home till you know eight o'clock at night because i'm sitting in a tree stand all day long and she worries about me not being with people. but you know i'm safe i always got a always got a harness on i don't do anything stupid like i used to and would i like to have more hunt partners absolutely but you know they're not willing to sit in a tree for 12 hours like i am you know that they're the fair weather hunters. so i'm going to go in at I want to go in at 6.30 and set till, you know, 7.45. Now that ain't going to work for me, man. Yeah, so, you know,
0: especially not on public can't. land.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. You can't do it. So, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. Hunting partners are few and far between, and when you get a good one, you better keep them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Man, we're hitting almost an hour and a half here. I should probably, I could talk all day, but I should probably hop off and answer some of the 14 people that have walked by the podcast room that have questions for me. Um I man i appreciate you coming on i appreciate the friendship and i definitely appreciate uh everything when we were you know together i don't uh you had a good impression on me for that lasted probably or or was bigger than probably you think and i can't thank you enough
1: yeah i i tell you what i i feel the same way man i i really appreciate our friendship and how how it's blossomed over the last couple of years once we reunited and i tell you what i you're like uh I look at you almost like being one of my little sons, you know, doing great things. Every time I open up an Instagram thing and see you doing something or asking questions, I just, I sit back and I have conversations with my wife and my sons about you. And it's just like, it's amazing, you know, the man that you become, you know. And I think, I think your military thing had a little bit to do with that, but I think you're just a downright good person and you're, you're out to help the world. And, and believe me, man, don't worry about what the naysayers say because it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. I've definitely learned that. Um, if you got a, I think Cameron Haynes put it best. If you got a hundred thousand people following you, and there's three percent that don't like you, that's a shitload of people that don't like you. But in reality, that's not very many. I try to look at
1: it yeah, that way. Yep. it's the radar screen, man. But all right, man, I'll let you go. And, and thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. I love listening to you guys' podcast and, and Luke's podcast and stuff like that. And you know, I you've opened up my my realm of reality in the hunting world a lot more with through your connections with people that you do things with and i i just want to say you know i appreciate everything you do for me you know and and uh, take care of yourself and tell amy and frank i said hello
0: all right sounds good man take it easy
1: all right thanks brother we'll talk to you later
0: you too